Hey, I'm Johanna Wagstaff. And hi there, I'm Rohit Joseph. And we're asking for 10 minutes of your day to go through the 10 things that the UN recommends we can all do when it comes to climate change. Please don't leave. No. And also the things (laughs) aren't new. We are just wired to not do them. We promise you to help you figure out your brains and you and your people can make better choices to combat climate change. 10 Minutes to Save the Planet is available now on CBC Listen and everywhere you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. This is Now or Never, the show that celebrates what it takes to try and reminds you that you are not alone when you do. I'm Trevor Deneen. And I am Ipi Chiwetelu. And Trevor, are you noticing people sharing more these days? Mm-hmm. Like, just one swipe through TikTok and I know more intimate details about strangers than people I have regularly in my life. Yeah, it's uh, it's getting a bit out of hand. But in order to level that playing field for you, Ify, uh, can I share with you the fascinating amount of toe jam that I found this morning in between my toes? You absolutely yeah. cannot and no, should it, not. No, it was yeah. like clowns coming out of a car. It was just never nope. ending. Just you never you keep pulling. You to immediately. Nope. Stop. This is how it feels when someone shares things with you that you didn't ask for. I'm incredibly uncomfortable right now. (laughs) But who decides what is TMI and who it can be told to? Like, is it better to be an open book or are there consequences that come with oversharing? Well, today on Now or Never, we are going to sit in the discomfort and the freedom that comes when you share more than somebody thinks you should. If I don't want to talk about it, I don't share it because I know people are going to ask me about that. So I'm, I'm writing um, horror and speculative fiction now. No one ever asks you about your life when you write about horror, right? They just <laughs> they stay away from you. It really was a case of now or never. If I didn't do it now, then no one would be able to speak up and stop or at least make people aware of what was going on. I'm going to answer it this way. I feel uncomfortable listening to Pia talk about her kids and give her kids name. Okay, what's that, that about? <laughs> like you, Pia, I think that who we are on the radio, I like to think that's who I am in real life, except there are pieces of information about myself that I just don't feel comfortable sharing. This is Now or Never, TMI. Did I tell you about the lint in my belly button as well? It was just like Trevor, the, stop, no? please. Okay, you're lost. The consequences of sharing too much information can be high, especially if that information is something people really want to keep quiet. This story includes mention of suicidal ideation. On a chilly winter day in Ontario, retired military captain Sean Bruyer is on a nature walk with his wife and son scouting out icicles. I wanted to show you guys something. So like, jolly ranchers. <laughs> <laughs> oh, like an inch and a half, two inches long, these ice crystals that grow straight up like pillars. Nice. Some even bigger ones here. Uh, so Wilfred and Carolina and myself, we like just going for walks and just to feel what, what nature allows us to do, which is to um, you know relax and to take our minds off the difficult, stressful parts of our lives. Oh, nice. beautiful. This walk in the woods is a long way from the world that Sean used to live in. 
After serving as an intelligence officer during the Persian Gulf War, he made the decision to risk everything to expose a government secret that he is still experiencing the consequences of today. Uh, I served as an Air Force intelligence officer, retiring as a captain. Uh, I served in the Persian Gulf War of 1990-91. Because of that, I incurred some disabilities, both physical and psychological, post-traumatic stress disorder, major depression, um, and gastrointestinal cardiac problems. Uh, that uh, led me to become an advocate for the rights of disabled veterans and their families, and that also resulted in becoming, becoming a whistleblower. I had made some connections with some members of Parliament, and they released to me, rather surreptitiously and secretly, uh, a document which showed that Canada was going to change a tradition of giving lifelong pensions to veterans and replacing them with one-time lump sums. So since the War of 1812, Canada paid lifelong disability pensions to injured veterans and their families. In 2005, they took that all away and gave a one-time lump sum. For me, this was so unacceptable that I felt I had to tell the public about something that was really being done in secret. What really was the tipping point for me was that sense of being lied to. I didn't think that was the type of system of government I was willing to go to war and die for. And it just shocked to the core of me that it's a betrayal. It was a betrayal for me of, uh, of all of us that served in uniform and especially those that became you know, disabled as a result of that. And I believed it was a bad thing and I wanted to at least have a voice for those veterans that didn't have a voice. And I came public with that. And uh, my wife says, you know, she's from Mexico. And she said to me quite bluntly, I'm really afraid. I'm really afraid that if you go forward and do this, Sean, something bad might happen to you. She says, because in our country, people get killed for this. And I just laughed it off because this is Canada. I mean, I was willing to die for these freedoms we have. Canada would never do something like this. So Sean spoke out. He went public with emails and a press conference and the uproar forced Parliament to hold a special hearing. And Sean braced himself to testify. I remember as I was testifying that my vision was narrowing and I, I felt like I was going to pass out. And the military is wonderful in the way that it teaches us just to push on through all adversity. <laughs> Stand up straight and tall, even when you're feeling horrible. There was a fear <laughs> that I don't know if you can do this. Your anxiety is high. You didn't sleep the night before because you were, because I was so stressed. I was so <laughs> incredibly stressed about this. Um, my stomach would get so in turmoil that the only thing I could eat, I had to eat something, would be bananas, and I'd take some anti-anxiety medication. And that was basically what powered me through the day. So I had my bananas, had my anti-anxiety medication. I had everything written down, stick to the script, um, and people listened. Um, and then my body said, that's enough. You're going home. And um, I think I was probably in bed for the next three days. What happened next to Sean has been documented in countless news stories. 
Sean's most sensitive personal information was circulated, his medical and psychiatric records within government, all to attack his credibility. I never thought that government would take revenge against me for speaking out. First part was to remove some of my benefits. Um, and the second part um, was to portray me as the crazy guy. Don't listen to him. Isolate me. Make me sound like I'm a loner and no one else thinks the way I do. Uh, and initially they were successful. So I was really alone. Even the Minister of Veteran Affairs at the time was handed briefing notes about Sean's life. This case, these briefing notes were about me. They said, Sean Bruyer, this is how much money he's getting. This is how much treatment he's getting. These are the conditions he suffers. Uh, this is the money he's spending on medication uh, through our department. And by the way, he's also criticized us. So by the way, this guy is probably a bit untrustworthy and unbalanced, and he's kind of alone. You know, he's a loner here, so let's not listen to him. When I read these summaries, I immediately cried. I, um, it broke my heart. It broke my heart. My country broke my heart. And um, I really needed to heal with my country and feel that I belonged because that department and what they wrote made it sound like I didn't belong, not to Canada, not to the world of the living. For Sean and his family, things took a very dark turn after he blew the whistle. My wife has been so steadfast and supportive, um, but it took a toll on her. It made her very afraid living in Canada. Personally, you know, it was also my wife who stopped what was going to be a pretty successful suicide attempt one night. Um, and I was going to go for a walk out on the Rideau River here, just close to our house. And she, <laughs> I'm laughing tragically because she stopped me from going outside. She knew I was going to do it, even though I didn't say anything to her. I don't know what she sensed. And to this day, I'm afraid of asking her to stop me from going outside. Despite it all, today, Sean has few regrets. I often look back and say, I wish I didn't suffer as much as I did. I wish, you know, my health didn't deteriorate because I can honestly say that fighting government was much harder on my body and my mind than fighting a war against an armed enemy. So I ask myself, you know, that question, if I had a time machine, I could go back and what would I change? And given what I was capable of back then, what the military had instilled in me, uh, what my childhood had instilled in me, that... I didn't have any other option but to speak out. Sean continues to fight for the rights of disabled veterans. He's launched a lawsuit and is pushing for provisions to protect whistleblowers in the military. So I still testify to Parliament, and I just recently testified on whistleblowing and uh, called for changes because the current law uh, does not recognize that veterans can be whistleblowers. And when we notice something wrong, the law will not protect us if we speak publicly. And so I'm advocating for that to change. It is always painful to revisit what I've experienced and what I've felt and what I've suffered. 
but it's helped me to put the pieces of a very fragmented traumatic background, uh, put those pieces together. I actually have a story to tell, even if it's just to myself and my family, that I am worth living. And those are difficult concepts for me to accept after all I've been through. You know, it may not be as big as taking on the government, but a little later in the show, we're going to meet someone who did something a lot of us would be terrified to do. Write a tell-all memoir about your family. But that's exactly what Lindsay Wong did when she published a funny, harrowing, and deeply personal memoir about her dysfunctional family. The catch is, she now feels like she may have shared just a little too much. And so, like, when you share that information, it has effect on people, or at least they remember it, right? Mm -hmm. It doesn't just disappear into the wind. So now I'm like, I don't know, should I tell you this? Should I keep it a secret? Who's, who are you going to tell? What advice do you give your students then about writing memoirs and what it's like sharing so much about yourself publicly and knowing that it's going to be out there? Don't do it. <laughs> That's, is that your whole memoir course? Did they come in? You're like, welcome, everyone. Don't do it. <laughs> No, I teach them how to do it. <laughs> and I say, well, if you would like to publish it, ask yourself, would you, you know, do you want everyone to know about you? How about writing it as fiction? Find out what happens when you spill the goods on your family for all the world to read. That's coming up a little later in the show. Today on Now or Never, we are sharing it all and working through the challenges and gifts that come with too much information. And Trevor, you and I have this conversation all the time about this work that we do, like how much personal information about ourselves is too much to share on the radio. I don't think there's too much for me, at least. I think I, I'll share it all, Leafs. Share it all. I know. I know you do. And every time, Trevor, I am I am sick in my stomach over it. I'm like, are you sure? Are we sure we need to say? <laughs> but what is that for you? Like, why why does that feel like a thing that you, you want to do? Honestly, I think it's because, like, in my youth, I kept a lot of secrets. Like, a lot of secrets from a lot of people. And that's just kind of the way I lived my life. And then that got overwhelming, and it got exhausting. And then eventually, as I got older, I realized just how much easier it was to just be honest and, and share and be open. And once I started doing that, I think it may have gone too far, but uh, now I just kind of share everything. You are really an open book, <laughs> which is so interesting because I, I think of myself as private, not to say that I don't share personal things, but I'm very, I think a lot about it. And, and there have been times on this show that I've shared something personally. And then over the course of the week, I am like sick over it, just being like, did it, ah, how do I feel? What do I need to do? And you know, we are far from the only ones who have this conversation. We reached out to some of our CBC host colleagues to find out just how much is too much. Thank you all for making the time to do this. Yay. Yeah. To do a thing that I know has been giving at least Paul some anxiety <laughs> since the idea was it mentioned. Just feeling tight in the chest, but it's fine. I'm cool. Super cool. <laughs> yeah. You're lucky you're on video, so we can't quite see the beads of sweat, like, dripping down your face. 
Hi, I'm Paul Haverstrude, and I host The Cost of Living. Hi, I'm Angeline Tedueo, and I'm the host of The Block on CBC Music. I'm Pia Chattopadhyay. I'm the host of The Sunday Magazine on CBC Radio, Sundays, 9 to 11, wherever you live. Unless um. you live in Newfoundland, and then it's on at 9.30. <laughs> well, As enough. the words were coming out of my mouth, I was like, I should say we're on Sundays at noon. Nah, that would be crass. <laughs> <laughs> Who would do that? <laughs> we have assembled this panel of hosts to ask them a series of juicy personal questions to find out where their TMI line is. I think I think the first thing I just want to know right off the hop is how much of your personal life are you comfortable sharing on air? Do you want to give us like a scale? Like how do you want us to answer this? Like, I don't share my son's name ever. Mm-hmm. Okay. I stopped putting him on social media. Okay. Yeah. But you do a music show. You could be like, you know what? This song was the song that I, you know, da 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 to. I have. I yeah. have like um, Otis Redding, Dock of the Bay. That's the song I was singing when I was getting my C-section scars, like stitched up. I had my son on my chest and okay. he was like, I was just singing to him and I'll say things like that, but I won't like... You know, he has his own life and he's entitled to that. So that's fair. That's a fair boundary. And Pia, you hosted a show where the whole intent (laughs) was to bring other people out in the open. I was just listening to Angeline (laughs) saying he deserves that. I'm like, oh, I'm sorry to my three children who most people know. I talk about them quite a lot. Mm -hmm. I feel like, uh, you know, people think sometimes when we're on air, we're quite different off air. And I would like to think that I'm very similar and my life isn't easily hived off into my personal life or professional life they kind of intersect Mm. and so I'm quite comfortable I think I don't know maybe people would say too comfortable sharing Mm. my personal life I don't know I'm gonna answer it this way I feel uncomfortable listening to Pia talk about her kids (laughs) and give her kids name okay what's that that. about (laughs) I like you Pia I think that who we are on the radio I like to think that's who I am in real life except there are pieces of information about myself that I just don't feel comfortable sharing. I would share a story like my C-section scar, sure, but that's not really saying anything about me. Yeah. I would love to hear the story of your C-section scar, Paul, and maybe that's an entirely different episode of Now or Never. Uh, well, with that, with that being said, I want to jump into these questions. They're going to get increasingly personal. We're going to start easy, start small. Who is your celebrity crush? Oh. Light, light question. Just Method easy, man. Just Method simple. man. Any particular reason? <laughs> Sexy AF. Oh my God. His flow, everything about. I dated the most stupid boy because he looked like Method I need you to know that her eyes were closed for most of that response. Paul? Winona Ryder in Reality Bites is like my, uh, you know, maybe not my OG crush, but I think she's the gold standard. I'm a. Really good with compliments. I've had so many. I don't know. Like this week, like Taylor Swift's <laughs> always my sweet Taylor crush. Swift. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I mean, people will think untoward things about me, but I was talking to my children who went to see Wonka about how cute uh, Timothy Chalamet is. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's Timmy Tim. Sometimes a little Timmy Tim. You know, oh, little fair. Timmy Tim. Yes. Uh, oh, I, go I back like that. And I only say people might think untoward because I'm much older than <laughs> my Timothy sister and you Chalamet. have something in common. You like dewy sort of young ones. Yeah, no. <laughs> Next question. How old are you? I'm going to start with Angeline. Nope. <laughs> That's a no. <laughs> okay. 50 and a half. Proud of it. Love it. Can we go back Six to months. Angeline? I just want to know, how come you won't answer that question? 
<laughs> because I keep on thinking like I'm gonna get identity thefted, and I feel like the less information, like you know, like birth dates, because you know, like those security questions that they ask you on the phone. It's like your birthday, your address. What was mm-hmm. the last thing you deposited? And I'm like, people can figure this stuff out, Paul. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to one-up Angeline. Not only did I not put it on Facebook, I don't have Facebook, and there's no chance I'm talking yeah. about my age. Really? Much for the same... Oh, yeah, much for the same reasons. What, do you want my Super mother's cheap. maiden name? Do you want my first pet name? <laughs> like, I don't, yeah. what, what kind of bank security questions do you want here? Okay. Now we're going to get a little bit deeper here. When did you last cry? New Year's Eve. Just New Year's Eve. I cried, like, all evening long. I was on no sleep. I had gone to the airport at like five in the morning to catch a flight that was delayed eight hours, never did get on the flight, ended up going back home and booking a flight for the next day, missed a New Year's Eve party I was really excited about, went back to my parents' house, which was empty because they're both dead. I almost dropped an F-bomb right there. So that's why I was crying on New Year's Eve. I'm sorry. you go. I'm sorry. (laughs) Sad AF. Yeah. So I cry like really cry I, I'm, I'm raising so I'm talking about my kids again so this is me sharing too much um you know I got a 13 year old she's almost 14 her, her pains which like take me back to my teenage years and I feel mm. them so I can cry often yeah. I, I wish I wish I could cry I can't I honestly can't remember the last time I cried and the vulnerable answer is because I was raised in a culture of toxic masculinity and I can't access my emotions. That uh, sucks. Yeah, yeah, it does. I wish I were different. So you yeah. can't and actually yet, remember the last time? No. And that's a BS answer. I get it. But No. I no. mean, it sounds like you've meaningfully thought about where that is. In the absence of tears, what replaces that for you? Uh, just shove it deep down in a box and close the box lid and then just and if that box gets full you just keep pushing on the lid that's healthy trevor yeah very oh my god deal with your emotions. Paul's gonna explode one day you guys <laughs> probably not yeah. there's like a 50 50 chance yeah <laughs> i love i love the honesty so this next question what is something you are insecure about or that you like to hide from the world huh i mean I I can't think about insecurity now, but it's like, you know, like, let's say a lot of people are surprised that I would self-select out of a position. Like earlier in my career, I would self-select out of a position. Like if I would go and I'd research the place and they had one black woman, I'd be like, well, they're not going to hire another one. Hmm. Hmm. And I'm not going to be able to hide the fact that I'm a black woman. Therefore, like I'd be insecure about that, about Mm -hmm. applying for a job because I'm a black woman, because they already have one. Mm. Like things like that. This is maybe what I'll pick up on what Angeline just said there is that I refuse as a woman or refuse as best as I can to be insecure. It's a bit of a personal mantra. I know so many boss, amazing women who have so much going for them and yet their insecurities tend to get in their way of their own bossness, like their own confidence in what they're putting out in the world. And there's this trope about, you know, people, broadcasters and stuff that we're all insecure and that's why we're good at our jobs or whatever. And I just, I just think that's all BS. It like, is. I think it's just a false bill of goods and that we're egomaniacs, and that we're insecure and all these things. So I refuse to... Uh, even buy into this conversation about insecurities because everyone is insecure about something. So I'm not uh, insecure about anything. Hi. Wow. I love, it. love that. This. Listen. Own yourself. Amen. You know, insecurities serve up nothing we? good, right? No, Vulnerability serves up lots of good, but yeah. insecurity, nothing good. No, yeah. I, I appreciate that perspective. You guys ready for this one now? I want y'all 
to log into your bank account and show one of us your account summary. <laughs> is, that, is that real? Yeah, that's a real one. Would you show your account summary? To page? who? Me. I'm right in front now? of you. Yeah, yeah, right now. Yeah, sure. Okay. You're kidding, Pia. No, you will not. <laughs> Paul is in shock. I'm going to be defrauded and have identity theft fight tomorrow. I'm gonna this is a this joke. You would that. not do this. Wait. You know what? Uh, I feel like am I I think, think I might be making some bad life choices. <laughs> yes, you are. I guarantee it. My heart is pounding for you, for me, for all of us. It's so uncomfortable right now. But Paul, I trust Efi. You shouldn't trust Efi. Have you seen Efi? <laughs> so Paul, I'm assuming you're not going to show us your bank account. <laughs> That's funny. That's really funny. You're a funny guy, Trevor. Hey, Paul, when you go out with your friends, what do you talk about? <laughs> Sports. <laughs> like I said, other to- people. Yes. Toxic masculinity. You and I can talk yeah. about the Raptors all day. Yeah, I know that. Go. Angeline hasn't answered yet, though. Yeah, sure. Why not? You would. Ooh. Yeah. I okay, mean, wow. for, I mean, it's a dare, right? Like, yeah. It's not like, and it's not going to be like on film or anything. I have um, $154.68 in my bank account. <laughs> the fact that you followed it up by saying it, I love it. I, I love the openness. I wouldn't even tell Trevor where I bank. <laughs> <laughs> you yes. know what I prefer? And one thing that people don't ever share is how much they make. Oh. And I think that's difficult because in a world where we're all trying to figure out what our monetary value is for the things that we do, people never share the amount of money they make. And I Paul, wait, you must have done an episode about this on the cost of living. Yeah. yeah, I think that pay transparency is important, especially when you think of all the union action that's happened right now. This is all part of that discussion. So I am all for that. Hypocritically, I'm not going to talk about that right now. But <laughs> no, and for, pay, that. and for pay. <clears throat> uh, okay. If you have a question for you, mm-hmm. tell me something you've never told anyone before. Yeah, right. No. This is not gonna, yeah, that's <laughs> not going to You have not met Ipichi with Taylor. Okay? Like, can, Trevor, specific. can I break her? No, no I don't think you can. So I have hard. a question for Evie. What and is maybe this happening? Okay. Why do you feel so uncomfortable sharing the deepest oh, parts question. of your life? Paul? <laughs> don't deflect. I'm not deflecting. I'm, I'm hosting and allowing the guest... Again, I think I think it's about autonomy. I think it's about um, knowing who you are and you, who you want to share those things with. And if you share them indiscriminately or have them shared with you beyond what you had expected, then you lose a certain part of yourself. So it's not so much about control in, in kind of a negative way. And sorry, this is getting a little bit deep and philosophical. But I think it's about having the choice of who you share things with and why. And that context is really important. I wonder if some of yeah. this is like the yeah. kind of family you grew up in and, no, no, and sometimes yeah. cultural things too, right? Because there are no secrets in my family. That yeah. Get me. yeah. I think I think there definitely is for me a cultural component. Also, I think the circumstance of the ways that I grew up, I think that I sort of internalized who do you share with and, and what parts of you can you share and can be understood and held? I think that's something that's a little, like a bit woven into who and how I am. And I do share, and I share with people that I'm close with. I do feel like <clears throat> we share a lot on the show, like uh, in, in a lot of different ways. Um, I think it's not a matter of like, do you share, do you not share? I just, I think I'm a, uh, I need to build. Mm-hmm. Not trust issues, just earn my trust. Yeah, and, and vice versa. Yeah. Like I, that's yeah. why I think it's such an honor when people share anything with us. Like that people are like, yes, I want to share my experience with you, my story this with you. This is what all the guests do. This yeah, is what I'm always like, beautiful. Thank you all for taking the time yeah, to uh, let us pry personally into your lives. Much nice. appreciated. Nice to mm-hmm. see you, CBC fam. Yeah. Don't dox me. Bye. Bye. <laughs> <laughs>
The climate is changing. So are we. I'm Laura Lynch, and I host What on Earth? That's CBC's Climate Solutions podcast. Twice a week, we take you around the world to find the people who are trying to build a better future for all of us. We explore Indigenous science, new technologies. We talk openly about mental health and climate anxiety. We also take your smart questions all the time. Come find What on Earth wherever you get your podcasts. This is Now or Never. I'm Trevor Deneen. And I am Ifi Chiwetelu. And today it is all about TMI, which, you know, when you hear that, you never really know what you're going to hear that might be too much and how that's going to sit with you. Which is probably exactly how Lindsay Wong's family must have felt when their daughter became a best-selling author known worldwide for writing The Woo Woo, a tell-all memoir about her family's struggle with undiagnosed mental illness. So the woo-woo, um, how I survived ice hockey, drug raids, demons, and my crazy Chinese family is a memoir about growing up in a conservative Chinese household that doesn't believe in mental illness. And they blame everything on the woo-woo, Chinese ghosts. So anything awful that happens, someone gets cancer, fails SATs, it's blamed on the ghosts. And, and so I wrote about that um, quite openly. <laughs> Lindsay's book became an instant hit, even making it to the final round of Canada Reads in 2019. But the bravery to write so openly about her family's issues was a double-edged sword. On one side, she was lauded as a hero for being so open. But on the other side, she realized that sharing so many intimate details can form an uncomfortable connection with complete and total strangers. What is that like? It, it, it must be interesting to, to talk to people who instantly know so much about you and your family and yet you don't know anything about them right off the hop it is so weird to be honest (laughs) um sometimes i have people who are just just assume that we're friends or they know everything about me and i'm like who are you have we met (laughs) um or they'll like reference something obscure in my book and i'm like oh okay um and sometimes you just don't know how to react because, you know, it's a stranger coming up to you. Mm-hmm. And um, so much of being a writer is being introverted. You're at home, you're writing, you're talking to yourself. And all of a sudden, it's like you have a million friends that you don't know. And, and that's always really disconcerting, I find. Were you someone who always felt comfortable sharing personal information and all these details about your life? Not at all. I am, I was one of those shyest introverted kids. I just never really talked to people. And, and so for me, it was really just a book that I wanted to keep on my shelf. I didn't even have a launch party. Um, I was just like, yay, you know, I have this really cute book with a pig on it. I'm going to put it on my shelf and, and that's it, right? You, you think like maybe five people are going to read it, including your agent. And then suddenly there was more than five people. And I was like, what is this? This is just the strangest thing that has ever happened. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess just being very young at that time, I didn't really realize that it would have, to have such an impact on, on people. And then, you know, once you're done, it's, it's supposed to be done. You're not really, you're not thinking about, oh, I'm going to do interviews. I'm going to promote this. I'm going to be, you know, talking about it a million times. And then the reality hits of all of a sudden, oh my goodness, thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people are reading this book. And I have talked about people in my family. I've shared so much details about my family. How did, how did it impact your family? 
Well, we we don't talk about it because it's uncomfortable. Like, what do you say about it? Um, it's not like you can take back a memoir, right? You can't be like, oh, um, so I wrote this and let's discuss it. And, and that's not how um, my family works. We're not going to sit down and rehash something. We're just going to, you know, sigh and, and just like move on, right? Um, of course, you know, people don't tell me things anymore because they're scared of me, Right. You know, once like a writer is born in the family, you know, I, I think a family dies or it's over. You're just not a safe person for secrets. Does that feel lonely? No, I don't think so. I just, I, I think it's, it can be funny, I think. <laughs> How so? Um, because now you were the one with all the power. You know what they're thinking, but they're just not saying it to your face, right? And, and so it, in, in so many ways, you know, it's almost freeing, right? Because everyone has to be nice to you. If you could talk about it with your family, if you could say something to them about the book, what, what would you want to say to them? Um, I, I would not want to have that conversation, <laughs> to be honest. Um, I would say, well, it's my memoir. It's how I see the truth and how I felt. Um, and, you know, of course, you're welcome to disagree with that. Um, and I know your version of the truth is probably very different from mine, um, but can we agree to disagree, right? If we were being adults about it. Um, but I think, you know, that's that's for very different people. Mm. Like knowing what you know now, if you went back to when you started writing the memoir, would you still share as much as you did in the book? Honestly, probably not. I think writing was really just a way... Um, for me to sort of really make sense of what had happened, to really understand the people in my life. Um, and I think, and many people have like this idea of wanting to confess and the memoir is, is that perfect place, right? Because so many people write memoirs um, or diaries and they don't publish them, right? Or they wait till mm -hmm. everyone's dead yeah. and then they do it. Like if you compare then Lindsay then, like because this was written five years ago, and then you then you look at Lindsay now, how has writing the memoir changed your comfort level about being so open and sharing personal information with people? Oh, I think it has made me really careful um, mm. in terms of what I share and how I want people to react. Because before five years ago, whatever I said, no one cared. Um, here. Um, if I'm talking to media, for example, sometimes I have students read my interviews and quote them back to me. And I'm just like, oh, okay, so I do have a readership. Whatever I say has responsibility. And so now I'm, I'm definitely a lot more careful. Um, I remember I was an adjunct at UBC um, when I lived in Vancouver and I had six roommates, right? Even though I had a best-selling book because Vancouver is so unaffordable. <laughs> And I remember the student coming up to me and being like, oh, have fun with your six roommates. And I was like, excuse me, but also, okay, you know this information because I had shared it because someone had asked about what is life like as a best-selling author. And I'm like, well, you have six roommates and you're poor and you know, it's Vancouver. What can I say? Right. Um, and so like when you share that information, it has effect on people, or at least they remember it, right? Mm -hmm. It doesn't just disappear into the wind. So now I'm like, I don't know, should I tell you this? Should I keep it a secret? Who's, who are you going to tell? What advice do you give your students then about writing memoirs and what it's like sharing so much about yourself 
publicly and knowing that it's going to be out there. Don't do it. <laughs> That's is that your whole memoir? Is that your whole memoir course? Did they come in? You're like, welcome everyone. Don't do it. <laughs> No, I teach them how to do it. <laughs> and I say, well, if you would like to publish it, ask yourself, would you, you know, do you want everyone to know about you? How about writing it as fiction? Of course, there's some people who, who really want to do it. And I will encourage them. But then there's a lot of people, too, who want to write one, but they're still waiting for everyone to die so they can publish it. Mm -hmm. Do you ever wish you waited that long? I don't know. Like looking, I mean, I'm really grateful that to have a career um, because of writing it. But would I have not published it? Maybe I've been like, okay, I'm gonna like keep this in my drawer and and just write fiction. What's it like when you read the book now? I don't read my books. Really? I do not. Um, once the book is out there, I I refuse to look at it. How come? I don't know what I'll find. Right? I'll be like, did I really say that? Did I really write that? And I think you're, you're like looking in the mirror, I guess, and, and being like, oh, that is what I really look like, or that is what I really sound like. It's like a very terrifying process to be honest with yourself, right? But it's very different, I think, to be honest and then send it out. It sounds like you have some common ground with your parents and family, though, because they haven't read the book and you haven't read the book. So it works so well. I read the book many times in revision, <laughs> but not afterwards. <laughs> After you've shared so much, is there a line for you now when you when you sit there now? Is there a line for you of what is too much information? Um, yes, because anything that I don't want to talk about, I won't write about. So, you know, in, in my present day, people are always like, well, what do you do now? What are you, um, what does everyone in your family think? And if I don't want to talk about it, I don't share it because I know people are going to ask me about that, Right. So I'm writing um, horror and speculative fiction now. No one ever asks you about your life when you write about horror, right? They just <laughs> they stay away from you. Yifi, do you want to know my favorite part about this entire chat with Lindsay? She did the whole thing from her mm. parents' house where she was visiting. Were they listening in? <laughs> I have no idea. Or they're probably like, we're done. We're done with hearing you talk about our family. Today on Now or Never, it is all about oversharing, which begs the question, how much is considered over? To the person saying it, it might feel like the perfect amount of sharing. But to the person hearing it, it may be way too much information, especially when all you want to do is give them a little cut and a little color. Any special requests? Um, so if we can like, like that. Some jazz. But I haven't been cutting my own bags. Are you so proud of me? Oh High fiber, let's go. I love this for you. My name is Meg and I'm a hairstylist here at Fifth Hair Salon. As a hairstylist, when you hear TMI, what what's the first thing that comes to mind? You start laughing. Yeah, no, it it's a real thing. It's a real thing, and it happens often. We call it therapy, you know, with with our profession. I think if someone had told me nearly thirty years ago, it's like strap in, we're in for like a wild ride right now. I would have been like, oh, okay, hmm, should I? You know, because it's it's a lot, and I mean, I think the hardest part has probably been the last like 
four or five years. You know, COVID's been pretty heavy for people, right? Mm -hmm. So um, there's definitely been, you know, some trauma dumping, you know. I think on everyone's end, I think that's just kind of how we are now. People miss the touch. People miss the care. uh, People miss the socializing. And I think people miss feeling seen. And And that's a really big part of it is, like, getting to that chair and you know that you have that. What do you think it is about sitting in this chair that makes you feel so comfortable to, to, to share and be open with the stylist? You're, you're giving them part of your body. Like you're, let, you're trusting them with like your hair, your scalp. Like that is like, it's part of your, that human touch. So you're sitting with someone and you're like physically being connected to them for so long. And so you just like those walls immediately come down, especially if you're having like coloring done or things where you're like in it for a couple hours. It's like you've already, you've gone through the small talk, you've done all like the superficial stuff. And then it's like, well, here comes a story from like grade four. Like it just kind of all starts coming out. What's the wildest thing that someone has like shared with you while, while sitting in your chair? Things get pretty spicy sometimes. So sometimes it's about people's uh, personal lives, like love lives. Sometimes it's about a scandalous situation. I hear a lot of uh, stuff about family drama. I mean, I'll I'll take a light revenge story here and there. We all love those slightly. Um, Divorces affairs like like I should have like a retainer's fee like I I should literally be like okay I'm gonna tack an extra hundred and thirty dollars of like a therapy fee to this appointment because it's it's all it's it's the full kit and caboodle well I think people know that it is your job to talk you know and it's it's your job to be friendly it's your job to figure out what it is that they want right and it's like oh i'm going to a hairstylist they'll they'll know i can i can do whatever i want there i can i can tell them whatever i want i can show them pictures like this is you know i can put in a special request i think that we are just placed in a very different category than most other people and a lot of it is the good stuff i mean it's the appointment that people actually want no one wants to go to the dentist no one wants to go to the doctor mm-hmm. well maybe they do but i mean the thing is like this is the special appointment in most people's lives I do realize that I am a loud talker, and when there's a blow dryer going in my ear, I feel like I need to remember where I am and that I am screaming it. And not everybody else around me has a blow dryer in their ear. Um, So I don't have anything off limits, but I need to remember where I am sometimes because I get too comfortable, I think. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like, that woman should maybe talk to someone that's not just her stylist. (laughs) I want to hear the winds. For sure, I want to hear, um, like I love it when someone's like, I'm going to run a marathon this year, and then they crush like that 5K or that 10K, or the whole darn thing. Mm. I've also like been really privileged over the last, I'd say 10, 15 years, to have people share like really personal things about me. It's like, hey, you know, I'm coming out, or I'm transitioning, or something like that. And it's like that, that to me, has been some of the most special things because people have trusted me with that information. And maybe it's up to me now to um, help them find a style that represents like who they are and makes them feel like their best self. Like that to me is like, yes, this is the icing that I never knew I was gonna get when I got into this industry. How do you handle it when someone though, when the opposite happens and someone starts sharing too much? Like I don't wanna hear any racist stuff. I don't wanna hear like, 
any bad like political things from people, um, anything that's like mean to someone. Like again, it's really hard to know your audience sometimes, mm -hmm. right? So I think if you're just being very anti something, like. I would hope, I mean, I've definitely shut down a few of those conversations. And I think too, some people just have really bad days. Mm -hmm. You know, if I hear something that feels tough for someone, you say, I'm, I'm sorry to hear that. You know, I wish things were different for you. And it makes me kind of sad to think that maybe people don't have those people in their life or maybe they can't afford the therapy, mm -hmm. but they could afford the haircut. I get it, mm -hmm. you know, it's a thing, you know. So do you think then there is such thing as too much information? Yes, of course there is. I, I, I think I think it's about reading the temperature, right? Trevor, who are you when you get your hair cut? Are you a talker? Uh, if I had to bet money, you are chatting the whole time. You think so? Yeah. I am stone cold silent. Oh. Truly. Uh, I don't know what it is. When I sit in the chair, it's like my time to just relax. I went to Modern Man for my last haircut and the woman didn't say a word to me and I tipped her more because of it. I was like, this is amazing. I just wanted to sit here. You know, I've heard that there are some places where you can actually specify, you know, some of these places that have online bookings, you can sort of say, I want a silent service. And I, I love that options because sometimes you want silence and sometimes you need to cry it out. This is my office, yeah, yeah, this is, uh, uh, there are a couple of words in there, there are the books that mean a lot to me, uh, there is... Danny Ramadan is in the space where the magic happens. Next to his vibrant graphic wallpaper is a bookcase filled with photos, awards, superhero collectibles, and of course, books. Uh, the Salma book is right there, there's, uh, multiple of them actually, so this is Salma the Syrian chef. Danny is a Syrian-Canadian public speaker, advocate for LGBTQ plus refugees, and author. And right now, he is showing me his latest book in the Selma series, books that follow a young Syrian girl navigating her new life in Canada. I, I like them all, to be honest. But if I'm going to pick favorites, and you're not supposed to, uh, Selma writes a book would be definitely my favorite. Selma Writes a Book is about Selma's family struggling and then coming to terms with their queer uncle. It's an affectionate and clear-eyed exploration about family and acceptance. And it's also one of the many children's books that has been challenged by school libraries across North America as too much information for kids to read. And that's been hard for Danny to swallow because this book is especially personal for him. I write for my adult work. I write a lot of like hard-hitting human condition stories that are quite depressing, to be completely frank with you. But then Salma is fun and she's independent and she has agency and she's, um, she's fun to write. I, I love that it, with your kid's book, it's kind of a place where you get to be soft a little bit. I know. Yes, that's... And I, I, I like that you use the word soft because... I would say definitely there's a lot of softness when I'm writing Salma because I'm thinking about my niece, right? Like I'm th thinking about my relationship with my niece and I, I, I want to tell her of the world because we live in a difficult world. We live in a challenging place nowadays. But at the same time, I want her to grow up with love for this beautiful world that we live in. And I, I want it to be real but soft, if that makes sense. 
And now I want to read to you something about the reception of it, specifically from the Waterloo Catholic School Board, where they mentioned that your book was to be put on restrictions to avoid any students reading subject matter that is not intended for them. What's your immediate reaction to that? Ah, gosh. When, when I write Salma, I'm writing it about myself. I'm writing it about my niece. I'm writing about a character that represents my own relationship with my niece. And when I hear this, it somehow tells me that my relationship to my niece is not appropriate. It is, um, it is somehow hiding this book about a gay uncle getting to know his niece from other children tells me that I am, as the gay uncle, should not be introduced to my niece. It just, it speaks to that core identity of mine. And I love my niece, right? Like, I, I'm, I want to see her grow and I want to make sure that she has a beautiful future, um, which I think is a, a thing all uncles that are involved in their niece's lives share. Like, we, we all, regardless of our sexual orientation or gender identity, we care about those beautiful little creatures in our life, right? Um, so being told that I'm inappropriate around children my niece's age sounds like an insult. It sounds like a slur. It really sounds like a slur. I feel it in my heart, honestly. Just a few months ago in November, the book was shadow banned by the Waterloo Catholic School Board along with three other books about 2S LGBTQ plus families. Shadow banning is a practice where restrictions are put on library books, and in this case, a teacher would have had to provide the Catholic context to the book before students could have permission to read it. We recorded this interview with Danny last month, and since then, the Waterloo Catholic School Board has reversed their decision and lifted all restrictions. But this was not the first time Danny faced challenges over his queer identity. I mean, to be honest, the challenge by the uh, school board here in Canada is, is does not scare me because I got arrested by the Syrian regime back in Syria. Like, this is not the biggest challenge I got because of my queer identity. It's, it's, um, it's by far um, children play compared to, to what I had to deal with before. I, I went through the Syrian prison system and I came out victorious on the other hand. And here I am having a conversation with the CBC. So um, this does not scare me. This does not put me back. At the same time, I'm just like, hey, like, I'm trying to come to you with softness. Can you come back to me with softness? That's all I'm asking. I, I'm, I'm just a dude who's writing children's books. Can you read a section of Sama Writes a Book? Mm-hmm. Your mother tried to understand when I first told her about Michael, my husband, Khalo said, his voice quiet. We have had many conversations about it. Before you were born, when you were a baby, and again now that you're old enough to hear us. Why wouldn't Mama just be happy for you and Michael, Khalo? Salma asks. It's hard for her because when I tell her my love is right, Everyone else back in Syria tells her that my love is wrong, Khalo explains. She is as confused as you are, Salma. When you were writing Salma Writes a Book, did you think you were doing something that 
was crossing a, a boundary? Or did you sense that you were doing something a bit brave? I wanted to write this book as a, as a medicine to, to that challenge where, where immigrants coming here are seeing queer folks being celebrated and being included in the society. That is what I wanted to write. I don't know if that's brave. I don't know if that is something that is crossing a boundary. It is just, there is, there's... Real. It's just real. There's, there's pain in there. There's a conflict in there. And that is the medicine for it. Sama writes a book as medicine. Does it feel like it was a medicine for you too? I would say, huh. <laughs> so my sister and I were not on good terms for the longest time. We, um, we separated when she was, I don't know, 11 and, and I was 18. And we did not get along. We, we never did. And she did not understand why I left the family. And I did not understand why uh, she can't see who I am. Uh, and then my husband and I decided to sponsor them uh, to come here to Canada. And one of the th conversations that my, I had with my husband is that he told me she might come here to Canada with her family and say, OK, thank you very much. And now don't ever talk to me ever again. And I was willing to take that risk. And when she came here, she wanted a relationship with me, but she wasn't sure about my husband. So she referred to him specifically when she was talking to my niece, she referred to him as my roommate or my friend for the first like couple of months. And, and that was bitter, right? Like that was painful. And my husband, in his great wisdom, um, told me to just wait for it, just give it time and give it patience. And, uh, and indeed, like over the, over the past two years, they saw him in Christmas gatherings and in Eid dinners, and they got to know him and they realized that he is not this foreign entity. He is an actual human being who cares for them. And, and now my, my sister and my husband, they text all the, they actually sent to each other this long message this morning. They were just like messaging all morning today. And my phone kept like, I was, I was cycling and my phone just like, bing, bing, bing. I'm like, do I have to be involved in this? Just like text each other privately. They're just best friends now, which is beautiful to see. So I guess writing this book was, I don't know, a way to fast track that, a way to tell people that that can, can exist, right? There are some like really beautiful um, reviews that people have been moved to share online. Um, things where people have said like, I love this tale of love and acceptance and learning from mistakes, sweet and heartwarming. Um, another person said, I've been looking to diversify my classroom library more and this cute little book is an excellent addition. How, how do you feel when you, when you receive some of those? I, I, I grew up with a lot of self-doubt. I grew up with a lot of people telling me that I will never amount to anything in the world. I, um, I grew up wanting to write books and to, to, to write poetry and everybody basically bullied me to death about it. Um, so when I read those, those, those reviews, when I know that my writing is impactful, that it has an effect on people, um, it elevates that, right? Like it, it, it removes all of that bully. It, it reminds me that by doing what I love and sticking to the things that I love doing, I, I, I managed to make it. I, I'm right here. 
These challenges have not slowed Danny down. He is hard at work writing two new books about Selma. Well, after sharing all of that information today, Efi, I would like to share the special team of producers that help put together the show every single week. Sarah Tate, Betsy Trumpner, Tanera McLean. I'm Trevor Deneen. And I am Ifi Chiwetelu. We'll see you next time. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.